Question 67 of Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the Angels and on the Six Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Russell. Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the Angels and on the Six Days by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 67 on the work of distinction in itself in four articles. We must consider next the work of distinction in itself. First, the work of the first day. Secondly, the work of the second day. Thirdly, the work of the third day. Under the first head, there are four points of inquiry. 1. Whether the word light is used in its proper sense in speaking of spiritual things. 2. Whether light in corporeal things is itself corporeal. 3. Whether light is a quality. 4. Whether light was fittingly made on the first day. First Article 1. Question 67. Article 1. Whether the word light is used in its proper sense in speaking of spiritual things. Objection 1. It would seem that light is used in its proper sense in spiritual things. For Augustine says, the literal meaning of Genesis 4, 28, that, quote, in spiritual things, light is better and surer, and that Christ is not called light in the same sense as he is called the stone. The former is to be taken literally, and the latter metaphorically, end quote. Objection 2. Further, Dionysius, Divine Names 4, includes light among the intellectual names of God. But such names are used in their proper sense in spiritual things. Therefore, light is used in its proper sense in spiritual matters. Objection 3. Further, the Apostle says, Ephesians 5.13, All that is made manifest is light. End quote. But to be made manifest belongs more properly to spiritual things than to corporeal. Therefore, also does light. On the contrary, Ambrose says, on faith, too, that splendor is among those things which are said of God metaphorically. I answer that. Any word may be used in two ways, that is to say, either in its original application or in its more extended meaning. This is clearly shown in the word sight, originally applied to the act of the sense, and then, as sight is the noblest and most trustworthy of the senses, extended in common speech to all knowledge obtained through the other senses. Thus we say, quote, seeing how it tastes, end quote, or smells, or burns. Further, sight is applied to knowledge obtained through the intellect, as in those words, quote, blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God, end quote. Matthew 5, 8. And thus it is with the word light. In its primary meaning it signifies that which makes manifest to the sense of sight. Afterwards it was extended to that which makes manifest to cognition of any kind. If then the word is taken in its strict and primary meaning, it is to be understood metaphorically when applied to spiritual things, as Ambrose says, on faith Two. But if taken in its common and extended use, as applied to manifestation of every kind, 
it may properly be applied to spiritual things. The answer to the objections will sufficiently appear from what has been said. Second article, 1, question 67, article 2, whether light is a body. Objection 1. It would seem that light is a body. For Augustine says, on free will, 3, 5, that, quote, light takes the first place among bodies, end quote. Therefore, light is a body. Objection 2. Further, the philosopher says, the topics 5, 2, that, quote, light is a species of fire, end quote. But fire is a body, and therefore so is light. Objection 3. Further, the powers of movement, intersection, reflection, belong properly to bodies, and all these are attributes of light and its rays. Moreover, different rays of light, as Dionysius says, divine names, too, are united and separated, which seems impossible unless they are bodies. Therefore, light is a body. On the contrary, two bodies cannot occupy the same place simultaneously, but this is the case with light and air. Therefore, light is not a body. I answer that, light cannot be a body for three evident reasons. First, on the part of place, for the place of any one body is different from that of any other, nor is it possible, naturally speaking, for any two bodies of whatever nature to exist simultaneously in the same place, since contiguity requires distinction of place. The second reason is for movement. For if light were a body, its diffusion would be the local movement of a body. Now, no local movement of a body can be instantaneous, as everything that moves from one place to another must pass through the intervening space before reaching the end, whereas the diffusion of light is instantaneous. Nor can it be argued that the time required is too short to be perceived, for though this may be the case in short distances, it cannot be so in distances so great as that which separates the east from the west. Yet as soon as the sun is at the horizon, the whole hemisphere is illuminated from end to end. It must also be borne in mind on the part of movement that whereas all bodies have their natural determinate movement, that of light is indifferent as regards direction, working equally in a circle, as in a straight line. Hence it appears that the diffusion of light is not the local movement of a body. The third reason is from generation and corruption. For if light were a body, it would follow that whenever the air is darkened by the absence of the luminary, the body of light would be corrupted, and its matter would receive a new form. But unless we are to say that darkness is a body, this does not appear to be the case. Neither does it appear from what matter a body can be daily generated large enough to fill the intervening hemisphere. Also, it would be absurd to say that a body of so great a bulk is corrupted by the mere absence of the luminary. And should anyone reply that it is not corrupted, but approaches and moves around the sun, we may ask why it is that when a lighted candle is obscured by the intervening object, the whole room is darkened. It is not that the light is condensed round the candle when this is done, since it burns no more brightly 
than that it burned before. Since therefore these things are repugnant, not only to reason, but to common sense, we must conclude that light cannot be a body. Reply Objection 1. Augustine takes light to be a luminous body in act, in other words, to be fire, the noblest of the four elements. Reply Objection 2. Aristotle pronounces light to be fire existing in its own proper matter. Just as fire in aerial matter is flame, or in earthly matter is burning coal. Nor must too much attention be paid to the instances adduced by Aristotle in his works on logic, as he merely mentions them as the more or less probable opinions of various writers. Reply Objection 3. All these properties are assigned to light metaphorically, and might in the same way be attributed to heat. For because movement from place to place is naturally first in the order of movement, as is proved Physics 8, Text 55, we use terms belonging to local movement in speaking of alteration and movement of all kinds. For even the word distance is derived from the idea of remoteness of place, to that of all contraries, as is said Metaphysics 10, text 13. Third article, 1, question 67, article 3, whether light is a quality. Objection 1. It would seem that light is not a quality, for every quality remains in its subject, though the active cause of the equality be removed, as heat remains in water removed from the fire. But light does not remain in the air when the source of light is withdrawn. Therefore, light is not a quality. Objection 2. Further, every sensible quality has its opposite, as cold is opposed to heat, blackness to whiteness. But this is not the case with light, since darkness is merely a privation of light. Light, therefore, is not a sensible quality. Objection 3. Further, a cause is more potent than its effect, but the light of the heavenly bodies is a cause of substantial forms of earthly bodies, and also gives to colors their immaterial being by making them actually visible. Light, then, is not a sensible quality, but rather a substantial or spiritual form. On the contrary, Damascene, on the Orthodox Faith, 1, says that light is a species of quality. I answer that. Some writers have said that the light in the air has not a natural being such as the color on a wall has, but only an intentional being as a similitude of color in the air. But this cannot be the case for two reasons. First, because light gives a name to the air, since by it the air becomes actually luminous. But color does not do this. For we do not speak of the air as colored. Secondly, because light produces natural effects, for by the rays of the sun bodies are warmed, and natural changes cannot be brought about by mere intentions. Others have said that light is the sun's substantial form, but this also seems impossible for two reasons. First, because substantial forms are not of themselves objects of the senses. For the object of the intellect is what a thing is, as is said, on the soul, 3, text 26. 
whereas light is visible of itself. In the second place, because it is impossible that what is the substantial form of one thing should be the accidental form of another, since substantial forms of their very nature constitute species, wherefore the substantial form always and everywhere accompanies the species. But light is not the substantial form of air, for if it were, the air would be destroyed when light is withdrawn. Hence it cannot be the substantial form of the sun. We must say, then, that as heat is an active quality consequent of the substantial form of fire, so light is an active quality consequent of the substantial form of the sun, or of another body that is of itself luminous, if there is any such body. A proof of this is that the rays of different stars produce different effects according to the diverse natures of bodies. Reply Objection 1. Since quality is consequent upon substantial form, the mode in which the subject receives a quality differs as the mode differs in which a subject receives a substantial form. For when matter receives its form perfectly, the qualities consequent upon the form are firm and enduring, as when, for instance, water is converted into fire. When, however, substantial form is received imperfectly, so as to be, as it were, in process of being received, rather than fully impressed, the consequent quality lasts for a time, but is not permanent. As may be seen when water, which has been heated, returns in time to its natural state. But light is not produced by the transmutation of matter, as though matter were in receipt of a substantial form, and light were a certain inception of substantial form. For this reason, light disappears on the disappearance of its active cause. Reply Objection 2. It is accidental to light not to have a contrary, for as much as it is the natural quality of the first corporeal cause of change, which is itself removed from contrariety. Reply Objection 3. As heat acts toward perfecting the form of fire as an instrumental cause, by virtue of the substantial form, so does light act instrumentally, by virtue of the heavenly bodies, towards producing substantial forms, and towards rendering colors actually visible, inasmuch as it is a quality of the first sensible body. Fourth Article, 1, Question 67, Article 4, Whether the production of light is fittingly assigned to the first day. Objection 1. It would seem that the production of light is not fittingly assigned to the first day, for light, as stated above, Article 3, is a quality. But qualities are accidents, and as such should have not the first, but a subordinate place. The production of light, then, ought not to be assigned to the first day. Objection 2. Further, it is light that distinguishes night from day. And this is effected by the sun, which is recorded as having been made on the fourth day. Therefore the production of light could not have been on the first day. Objection 3. Further, night and day are brought about by the circular movement of a luminous body. But movement of this kind is an attribute of the firmament. And we read that the firmament was made on the second day. Therefore the production of light dividing night from day ought not to be assigned to the first day. Objection 4. 
Further, if it be said that spiritual light is here spoken of, it may be replied that the light made on the first day dispels the darkness. But in the beginning spiritual darkness was not, for even the demons were in the beginning good, as has been shown, question 63, article 5. Therefore the production of light ought not to be assigned to the first day. On the contrary, that without which there could not be day must have been made on the first day. But there can be no day without light. Therefore light must have been made on the first day. I answer that. There are two opinions as to the production of light. Augustine seems to say, the city of God, 11, 9, and 33, that Moses could not have fittingly passed over the production of the spiritual creature, and therefore when we read, quote, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, end quote, a spiritual nature as yet formless is to be understood by the word heaven, and formless matter of the corporeal creature by the word earth, and spiritual nature was formed first, as being of higher dignity than corporeal. The forming, therefore, of this spiritual nature is signified by the production of light, that is to say, of spiritual light. For a spiritual nature receives its form by the enlightenment whereby it is led to adhere to the word of God. Other writers think that the production of spiritual creatures was purposely omitted by Moses and give various reasons. Basil, first homily on the Hexemeron, says that Moses begins his narrative from the beginning of time, which belongs to sensible things, but the spiritual or angelic creation is passed over, as created beforehand. Chrysostom, second homily on Genesis, gives as a reason for the omission that Moses was addressing an ignorant people, to whom material things alone appealed, and whom he was endeavoring to withdraw from the service of idols. It would have been to them a pretext for idolatry if he had spoken to them of nature's spiritual, in substance, and nobler than all corporeal creatures, for they would have paid them divine worship, since they were prone to worship as gods even the sun, moon, and stars, which was forbidden them, Deuteronomy 4. But mention is made of several kinds of formlessness in regard to the corporeal creature. One is where we read that, quote, the earth was void and empty, end quote, and another where it is said that, quote, darkness was upon the face of the deep, end quote. Now it seems to be required for two reasons that the formlessness of darkness should be removed first of all by the production of light. In the first place, because light is a quality of the first body, as was stated, Article 3, and thus by means of light it was fitting that the world should first receive its form. The second reason is because light is a common quality, for light is common to terrestrial and celestial bodies. But as in knowledge we proceed from general principles, so do we in work of every kind. For the living thing is generated before the animal, and the animal before the man, as is shown in Generation of Animals 2.3. It was fitting, then, as an evidence of the divine wisdom, that among the works of distinction the production of light should take first place, 
since light is a form of the primary body, and because it is more common quality. Basil, second homily on the hexameron, indeed adds a third reason, that all other things are made manifest by light, and there is yet a fourth, already touched upon in the objections, that day cannot be unless light exists, which was made therefore on the first day. Reply Objection 1. According to the opinion of those who hold that the formlessness of matter preceded its form and duration, matter must be held to have been created at the beginning with substantial forms, afterwards receiving those that are accidental, among which light holds the first place. Reply Objection 2. In the opinion of some, the light here spoken of was a kind of luminous nebula, and that on the making of the sun this returned to the matter of which it had been formed. But this cannot well be maintained, as in the beginning of Genesis, Holy Scripture records the institution of that order of nature which henceforth is to endure. We cannot, then, say that what was made at that time afterwards ceased to exist. Others therefore held that this luminous nebula continues in existence but so closely attached to the sun as to be indistinguishable. But this is as much to say that it is superfluous, whereas none of God's works have been made in vain. On this account it is held by some that the sun's body was made out of this nebula. This too is impossible to those, at least, who believe that the sun is different in its nature from the four elements and naturally incorruptible, for in that case its matter cannot take on another form. I answer then with Dionysius, Divine Names 4, that the light was the sun's light, formless as yet, being already the solar substance, and possessing illuminative power in a general way, to which was afterwards added the special and determinative power required to produce determinate effects. Thus, then, in the production of this light, a triple distinction was made between light and darkness. First, as to the cause, for as much as in the substance of the sun we have the cause of light, and in the opaque nature of the earth the cause of darkness. Secondly, as to place, for in one hemisphere there was light, in another darkness. Thirdly, as to time, because there was light for one and darkness for another in the same hemisphere. And this is signified by the words, quote, He called the light day and the darkness night. End quote. Reply Objection 3. Basil says, second homily on the hexameron, that day and night were then caused by expansion and contraction of light rather than by movement. But Augustine objects to this, the literal meaning of Genesis 2, that there was no reason for this vicissitude of expansion and contraction, since there were neither men nor animals on the earth at that time for whose service this was required, nor does the nature of a luminous body seem to admit of the withdrawal of light so long as the body is actually present, though this might be effected by a miracle. As to this, however, Augustine remarks, the literal meaning of Genesis 1, that in the first founding of the order of nature we must not look for miracles, 
but for what is in accordance with nature. We hold, then, that the movement of the heavens is twofold. Of these movements, one is common to the entire heaven, and is the cause of day and night. This, as it seems, had its beginning on the first day. The other varies in proportion as it affects various bodies, and by its variations is the cause of the succession of days, months, and years. Thus it is that in the account of the first day, the distinction between day and night alone is mentioned, this distinction being brought about by the common movement of the heavens. The further distinction into successive days, seasons, and years recorded as begun on the fourth day, in the words, quote, let them be for seasons and for days and years, end quote, is due to proper movements. Reply Objection 4. As Augustine teaches, Confessions 12, the literal meaning of Genesis 1, 15, formlessness did not precede forms in duration, and so we must understand the production of light to signify the formation of spiritual creatures, not, indeed, with the perfection of glory, in which they were not created, but with the perfection of grace, which they possessed from their creation, as said above. Question 62, Article 3. Thus the division of light from darkness will denote the distinction of the spiritual creature from other created things as yet without form. But if all created things received their form at the same time, the darkness must be held to mean the spiritual darkness of the wicked, not as existing from the beginning, but such as God foresaw would exist. End of question 67. Recording by Tony Russell. Question 68 of Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the Angels and on the Six Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Russell. Summa Theologica Pars Prima, On the Angels and on the Six Days by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province, Question 68, On the Work of the Second Day, in Four Articles. We must next consider the work of the Second Day. Under this head are four points of inquiry. 1. Whether the firmament was made on the second day. 2 whether there are waters above the firmament. 3. Whether the firmament divides waters from waters. 4. Whether there is more than one heaven. First article, 1, question 68, article 1. Whether the firmament was made on the second day. Objection 1. It would seem that the firmament was not made on the second day, for it is said, Genesis 1, 8, quote, God called the firmament heaven, End quote. But the heaven existed before days, as is clear from the words, quote, In the beginning God created heaven and earth. End quote. Therefore the firmament was not made on the second day. Objection 2. Further, the work of the six days is ordered conformably to the order of divine wisdom. Now it would ill become the divine wisdom to make afterwards that which is naturally first. But though the firmament naturally precedes the earth, 
and the waters. These are mentioned before the formation of light, which was on the first day. Therefore the firmament was not made on the second day. Objection 3. Further, all that was made in the six days was formed out of matter created before days began. But the firmament cannot have been formed out of pre-existing matter, for if so, it would be liable to generation and corruption. Therefore the firmament was not made on the second day. On the contrary, it is written, Genesis 1, 6, quote, God said, Let there be a firmament, end quote. And further on, verse 8, quote, And the evening and morning were the second day, end quote. I answer that, in discussing questions of this kind, two rules are to be observed, as Augustine teaches, the literal meaning of Genesis 1.18. The first is, to hold the truth of Scripture without wavering. The second is that since Holy Scripture can be explained in a multiplicity of senses, one should adhere to a particular explanation only in such measure as to be ready to abandon it, if it be proved with certainty to be false, lest Holy Scripture be exposed to the ridicule of unbelievers and obstacles be placed to their believing. We say, therefore, that the words which speak of the firmament as made on the second day can be understood in two senses. They may be understood, first, of the starry firmament, on which point it is necessary to set forth the different opinions of philosophers. Some of these believed it to be composed of the elements, and this was the opinion of Empedocles, who, however, held further that the body of the firmament was not susceptible of dissolution, because its parts are, so to say, not in disunion, but in harmony. Others held the firmament to be of the nature of the four elements, not indeed compounded of them, but being, as it were, a simple element. Such was the opinion of Plato who held that element to be fire. Others again have held that the heaven is not of the nature of the four elements, but is itself a fifth body, existing over and above these. This is the opinion of Aristotle, on the heavens, 1, text 6 and 32. According to the first opinion, it may, strictly speaking, be granted that the firmament was made, even as to substance, on the second day for it is part of the work of creation to produce the substance of the elements, while it belongs to the work of distinction and adornment to give forms to the elements that pre-exist. But the belief that the firmament was made as to its substance on the second day is incompatible with the opinion of Plato, according to whom the making of the firmament implies the production of the element of fire. This production, however, belongs to the work of creation, at least according to those who hold that formlessness of matter preceded in time its formation, since the first form received by matter is the elemental. Still less compatible with the belief that the substance of the firmament was produced on the second day is the opinion of Aristotle, seeing that the mention of days denotes succession of time, whereas the firmament, being naturally incorruptible, is of a matter not susceptible of change of form, wherefore it could not be made out of matter existing antecedently in time. Hence to produce the substance of the firmament belongs to the work of creation, but its formation in some degree belongs to the second day, according to both opinions, 
For, as Dionysius says, divine names four, the light of the sun was without form during the first three days, and afterwards, on the fourth day, received its form. If, however, we take these days to denote merely sequence in the natural order, as Augustine holds, the literal meaning of Genesis 4, 22, and 24, and not secession in time, there is then nothing to prevent our saying, whilst holding any one of the opinions given above, that the substantial formation of the firmament belongs to the second day. Another possible explanation is to understand by the firmament that was made on the second day, not that in which the stars are set, but the part of the atmosphere where the clouds are collected, and which has received the name firmament from the firmness and density of the air. Quote, For a body is called form, end quote, that is dense and solid, quote, thereby deferring from a mathematical body, end quote, as is remarked by Basil, third homily on the hexameron. If then this explanation is adopted, none of these opinions will be found repugnant to reason. Augustine, in fact, the literal meaning of Genesis 2, 4, recommends it thus, quote, I consider this view of the question worthy of all commendation, as neither contrary to faith nor difficult to be proved and believed, end quote. Reply Objection 1. According to Chrysostom, third homily on Genesis, Moses prefaces his record by speaking of the works of God collectively, in the words, quote, In the beginning God created heaven and earth, end quote, and then proceeds to explain them part by part, in somewhat the same way as one might say, quote, This house was constructed by that builder, end quote, and then add, quote, First, he laid the foundations, then built the walls, and thirdly, put on the roof, end quote. In accepting this explanation, we are, therefore, not bound to hold that a different heaven is spoken of in the words, quote, In the beginning God created heaven and earth, end quote. And when we read that the firmament was made on the second day, we may also say that the heaven recorded as created in the beginning is not the same as that made on the second day, and there are several senses in which this may be understood. Augustine says, the literal meaning of Genesis 1-9, that the heaven recorded as made on the first day is the formless spiritual nature, and that the heaven of the second day is the corporeal heaven. According to Bede, Hexaemerin 1, and Strabus, the heaven made on the first day is the Empyrean, and the firmament made on the second day the starry heaven. According to Damascene, on the Orthodox faith, too, that of the first day was spherical in form and without stars, the same, in fact, that the philosophers speak of, calling it the ninth sphere, and the primary movable body that moves with diurnal movement, while by the firmament made on the second day he understands the starry heaven. According to another theory touched upon by Augustine, the literal meaning of Genesis 2, 1, the heaven made on the first day was the starry heaven, and the firmament made on the second day was that region of the air where the clouds are collected, which is also called heaven, but equivocally. And to show that the word is here used in an equivocal sense, 
it is expressly said that, quote, God called the firmament heaven, end quote, just as in a preceding verse it said that, quote, God called the light day, end quote, since the word day is also used to denote a space of 24 hours. Other instances of a similar use occur, as pointed out by Rabbi Moses. The second and third objections are sufficiently answered by what has already been said. Second Article 1, Question 68, Article 2. Whether there are waters above the firmament? Objection 1. It would seem that there are not waters above the firmament, for water is heavy by nature, and heavy things tend naturally downwards, not upwards. Therefore there are not waters above the firmament. Objection 2. Further, water is fluid by nature, and fluids cannot rest on a sphere, as experience shows. Therefore, since the firmament is a sphere, there cannot be water above it. Objection 3. Further, water is an element, and appointed to the generation of composite bodies, according to the relation in which imperfect things stand towards perfect. But bodies of composite nature have their place upon the earth, and not above the firmament, so that water would be useless there. But none of God's works are useless. Therefore, there are not waters above the firmament. On the contrary, it is written Genesis 1-7, God divided the waters that were under the firmament from those that were above the firmament. End quote. I answer with Augustine, the literal meaning of Genesis 2, 5, that, quote, These words of Scripture have more authority than the most exalted human intellect. Hence, whatever these waters are, and whatever their mode of existence, we cannot for a moment doubt that they are there, end quote. As to the nature of these waters, all are not agreed. Origen says, first homily on Genesis, that the waters that are above the firmament are, quote, spiritual substances, end quote. Wherefore it is written, Psalms 148, 4, quote, Let the waters that are above the heavens praise the name of the Lord, end quote. And Daniel 3, 60, quote, Ye waters that are above the heavens bless the Lord, end quote. To this Basil answers, third homily on the hexameron, that these words do not mean that these waters are rational creatures, but that, quote, the thoughtful contemplation of them by those who understand fulfills the glory of the Creator, end quote. Hence, in the same context, fire, hail, and other like creatures are invoked in the same way, though no one would attribute reason to these. We must hold, then, these waters to be material, but their exact nature will be differently defined according as opinions on the firmament differ. For if by the firmament we understand the starry heaven, and as being of the nature of the four elements, for the same reason it may be believed that the waters above the heaven are of the same nature as the elemental waters. But if by the firmament we understand the starry heaven not, however, as being of the nature of the four elements, then the waters above the firmament will not be of the same nature as the elemental waters, but just as, according to Strabus, one heaven is called Empyrean, that is, fiery, solely on account of its splendor, 
so this other heaven will be called aqueous solely on account of its transparency, and this heaven is above the starry heaven. Again, if the firmament is held to be of other nature than the elements, it may still be said to divide the waters, if we understand by water not the element but formless matter. Augustine, in fact, says about On Genesis against the Manichees, 1, 5, and 7, that whatever divides bodies from bodies can be said to divide waters from waters. If, however, we understand by the firmament that part of the air in which the clouds are collected, then the waters above the firmament must rather be the vapors resolved from the waters which are raised above a part of the atmosphere and from which the rain falls. But to say, as some writers alluded to by Augustine, the literal meaning of Genesis 2, 4, that waters resolved into vapor may be lifted above the starry heaven is a mere absurdity. The solid nature of the firmament, the intervening region of fire, wherein all vapor must be consumed, the tendency in light and rarefied bodies to drift to one spot beneath the vault of the moon, as well as the fact that vapors are perceived not to rise even to the tops of the higher mountains, all to go to show the impossibility of this. Nor is it less absurd to say, in support of this opinion, that bodies may be rarefied infinitely, since natural bodies cannot be infinitely rarefied or divided, but up to a certain point only. Reply Objection 1. Some have attempted to solve this difficulty by supposing that in spite of the natural gravity of water, it is kept in its place above the firmament by the divine power. Augustine, the literal meaning of Genesis 2, 1, however, will not admit this solution, but says, quote, It is our business here to inquire how God has constituted the natures of his creatures, not how far it may have pleased him to work on them by way of miracle. End quote. We leave this view, then, and answer that according to the last two opinions on the firmament and the waters, the solution appears from what has been said. According to the first opinion, an order of the elements must be supposed different from that given by Aristotle. That is to say, that the waters surrounding the earth are of a dense consistency, and those around the firmament of a rarer consistency, in proportion to the respective density of the earth and of the heaven, or by the water, as stated, we may understand the matter of bodies to be signified. Reply Objection 2. The solution is clear from what has been said, according to the last two opinions, but according to the first opinion, Basil gives two replies, third homily on the hexaemeron. He answers first that a body seen as concave beneath need not necessarily be rounded or convex above. Secondly, that the waters above the firmament are not fluid, but exist outside it in a solid state, as a mass of ice, and that this is the crystalline heaven of some writers. Reply Objection 3. According to the third opinion given, the waters above the firmament have been raised in the form of vapors and serve to give rain to the earth. But according to the second opinion, they are above the heaven that is wholly transparent and starless. 
This, according to some, is the primary mobile, the cause of the daily revolution of the entire heaven, whereby the continuance of generation is secured. In the same way, the starry heaven by the zodiacal movement is the cause whereby different bodies are generated or corrupted through the rising and setting of the stars and their various influences. But according to the first opinion, these waters are set there to temper the heat of the celestial bodies, as Basil supposes, third homily on the hexaemeron. And Augustine says, the literal meaning of Genesis 2, 5, that some have considered this to be proved by the extreme cold of Saturn owing to its nearness to the waters that are above the firmament. Third article, 1, question 68, article 3, whether the firmament divides waters from waters. Objection 1. It would seem that the firmament does not divide waters from waters, for bodies that are of one and the same species have naturally one and the same place. But the philosopher says, Topics 1-6, All water is the same species. End quote. Water, therefore, cannot be distinct from water by place. Objection 2. Further, should it be said that the waters above the firmament differ in species from those under the firmament, it may be argued, on the contrary, that things distinct in species need nothing else to distinguish them. If then these waters differ in species, it is not the firmament that distinguishes them. Objection 3. Further, it would appear that what distinguishes waters from waters must be something which is in contact with them on either side, as a wall standing in the midst of a river. But it is evident that the waters below do not reach up to the firmament. Therefore, the firmament does not divide the waters from the waters. On the contrary, it is written, Genesis 1.6, Let there be a firmament made amidst the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. End quote. I answer that. The text of Genesis, considered superficially, might lead to the adoption of a theory similar to that held by certain philosophers of antiquity, who taught that water was a body infinite in dimension, and the primary element of all bodies. Thus, in the words, quote, darkness was upon the face of the deep, end quote, the word deep might be taken to mean the infinite mass of water, understood as the principle of all other bodies. These philosophers also taught that not all corporeal things are confined beneath the heaven perceived by our senses, but that a body of water, infinite in extent, exists above that heaven. On this view, the firmament of heaven might be said to divide the waters without from those within, that is to say, from all bodies under the heaven, since they took water to be the principle of them all. As, however, this theory can be shown to be false by solid reasons, it cannot be held to be the sense of Holy Scripture. It should rather be considered that Moses was speaking to ignorant people, and that out of condescension to their weakness, he put before them only such things as are apparent to sense. Now, even the most uneducated can perceive by their senses that earth and water are corporeal. 
whereas it is not evident to all that air also is corporeal. For there have been philosophers who said that air is nothing, and called a space filled with air a vacuum. Moses, then, while he expressly mentions water and earth, makes no express mention of air by name, to avoid setting before ignorant persons something beyond their knowledge. In order, however, to express the truth to those capable of understanding it, he implies in the words, quote, darkness was upon the face of the deep, end quote. The existence of air as attendant, so to say, upon the water. For it may be understood from these words that over the face of the water a transparent body was extended, the subject of light and darkness, which in fact is the air. Whether then we understand by the firmament, the starry heaven, or the cloudy region of the air, it is true to say that it divides the waters from the waters, according as we take water to denote formless matter, or any kind of transparent body as fittingly designated under the name of waters. For the starry heaven divides the lower transparent bodies from the higher, and the cloudy region divides that higher part of the air where the rain and similar things are generated from the lower part, which is connected with the water and included under that name. Reply Objection 1. If by the firmament is understood the starry heaven, the waters above are not of the same species as those beneath. But if by the firmament is understood the cloudy region of the air, both these waters are of the same species, and two places are assigned to them, though not for the same purpose, the higher being the place of their begetting, the lower the place of their repose. Reply Objection 2. If the waters are held to defer in species, the firmament cannot be said to divide the waters as the cause of their destruction, but only as the boundary of each. Reply Objection 3. On account of the air and other similar bodies being invisible, Moses includes all such bodies under the name of water, and thus it is evident that waters are found on each side of the firmament, whatever be the sense in which the word is used. Fourth Article 1. Question 68. Article 4. Whether there is only one heaven. Objection 1. It would seem that there is only one heaven. For the heaven is contrasted with the earth in the words, quote, In the beginning God created heaven and earth. End quote. But there is only one earth, therefore there is only one heaven. Objection 2. Further, that which consists of the entire sum of its own matter must be one. And such is the heaven, as the philosopher proves, on the heavens 1, text 95. Therefore there is but one heaven. Objection 3. Further, whatever is predicated of many things univocally is predicated of them according to some common notion. But if there are more heavens than one, they are so called univocally. For if equivocally only, they could not properly be called many. If then they are many, there must be some common notion by reason of which each is called heaven. But this common notion cannot be assigned. Therefore, there cannot be more than one heaven. On the contrary, it is said, Psalms 148, 
4, quote, Praise him, ye heavens of heavens. End quote. I answer that. On this point, there seems to be a diversity of opinion between Basil and Chrysostom. The latter says that there is only one heaven, fourth homily on Genesis, and that the words heavens of heavens are merely the translation of the Hebrew idiom according to which the word is always used in the plural, just as in Latin there are many nouns that are wanting in the singular. On the other hand, Basil, third homily on the Hexameron, whom Damascene follows on the Orthodox faith too, says that there are many heavens. The difference, however, is more nominal than real, for Chrysostom means by the one heaven the whole body that is above the earth and the water, for which reason the birds that fly in the air are called birds of heaven, Psalms 8, 9. But since in this body there are many distinct parts, Basil said that there are more heavens than one. In order then to understand the distinction of heavens, it must be borne in mind that Scripture speaks of heaven in a threefold sense. Sometimes it uses the word in its proper and natural meaning, when it denotes that body on high which is luminous actually or potentially and incorruptible by nature. In this body, there are three heavens. The first is the Empyrean, which is wholly luminous. The second is the aqueous or crystalline, wholly transparent. And the third is called the starry heaven, in part transparent and in part actually luminous and divided into eight spheres. One of these is the sphere of the fixed stars. The other seven, which may be called the seven heavens, are the spheres of the planets. In the second place, the name heaven is applied to a body that participates in any property of the heavenly body, as sublimity and luminosity, actual or potential. Thus Damascene, on the Orthodox faith too, holds as one heaven all the space between the waters and the moon's orb, calling it the aerial. According to him, then, there are three heavens, the aerial, the starry, and one higher than both these, of which the apostle is understood to speak when he says of himself that he was, quote, wrapped to the third heaven, end quote. But since this space contains two elements, namely fire and air, and in each of these there is what is called a higher and a lower region, Rabinus subdivides this space into four distinct heavens. The higher region of fire he calls the fiery heaven, the lower the Olympian heaven from a lofty mountain of that name. The higher region of air he calls from its brightness the ethereal heaven, the lower the aerial. When, therefore, these four heavens are added to the three enumerated above, there are seven corporeal heavens in all, in the opinion of Rabinus. Thirdly, there are metaphorical uses of the word heaven, as when this name is applied to the Blessed Trinity, who is the light and the most high spirit. It is explained by some as thus applied in the words, quote, I will ascend into heaven, end quote, whereby the evil spirit is represented as seeking to make himself equal with God. 
sometimes also spiritual blessings, the recompense of the saints, from being the highest of all good gifts, are signified by the word heaven, and in fact are so signified according to Augustine on the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, in the words, quote, Your reward is very great in heaven, end quote. Matthew 5, 12. Again, three kinds of supernatural visions, bodily, imaginative, and intellectual, are called sometimes so many heavens, in reference to which Augustine, the literal meaning of Genesis 12, expounds Paul's rapture, quote, to the third heaven, end quote. Reply objection one. The earth stands in relation to the heaven as the center of a circle to its circumference, but as one center may have many circumferences, so, though there is but one earth, there may be many heavens. Reply Objection 2. The argument holds good as to the heaven, in so far as it denotes the entire sum of corporeal creation, for in that sense it is one. Reply Objection 3. All the heavens have in common sublimity and some degree of luminosity, as appears from what has been said. End of question 68. Recording by Tony Russell. Question 69 of Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the Angels and on the Six Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the Angels and on the Six Days by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 69. On the work of the third day in two articles. We next consider the work of the third day. Under this head there are two points of inquiry. One, about the gathering together of the waters. Two, about the production of plants. First article. Whether it was fitting that the gathering together of the waters should take place as recorded on the third day. Objection 1. It would seem that it was not fitting that the gathering together of the waters should take place on the third day, for what was made on the first and second days is expressly said to have been made in the words, quote, God said, Be light made, and let there be a firmament made. Close quote. But the third day is contradistinguished from the first and the second days, Therefore, the work of the third day should have been described as a making, not as a gathering together. Objection 2. Further, the earth hitherto had been completely covered by the waters, wherefore it was described as, quote, invisible, close quote. See Question 66, Article 1, Objection 1. There was then no place on earth to which the waters could be gathered together. Objection 3. Further, things which are not in continuous contact cannot occupy one place, but not all the waters are in continuous contact, and therefore all were not gathered together into one place. Objection 4. Further, a gathering together is a mode of local movement, but the waters flow naturally and take their course towards the sea. In their case, therefore, a divine precept of this kind was unnecessary. Objection 5. 
Further, the earth is given its name at its first creation by the words, quote, In the beginning God created heaven and earth, close quote. Therefore the imposition of its name on the third day seems to be recorded without necessity. On the contrary, the authority of Scripture suffices. I answer that it is necessary to reply differently to this question according to the different interpretations given by Augustine and other holy writers. In all these works, according to Augustine, the literal meaning of Genesis 1.15.4.22.34 Concerning Genesis against the Manichees 1.5-7 There is no order of duration, but only of origin and nature. He says that the formless spiritual and formless corporeal natures were created first of all, and that the latter are at first indicated by the words earth and water. Not that this formlessness preceded formation in time, but only in origin, nor yet that one formation preceded another in duration, but merely in the order of nature. Agreeably, then, to this order, the formation of the highest or spiritual nature is recorded in the first place, where it is said that light was made on the first day. For as the spiritual nature is higher than the corporeal, so the higher bodies are nobler than the lower. Hence the formation of the higher bodies is indicated in the second place by the words, quote, Let there be made a firmament, close quote by which is to be understood the impression of celestial forms on formless matter that preceded with priority not of time, but of origin only. But in the third place the impression of elemental forms on formless matter is recorded also with a priority of origin only. Therefore the words, quote, Let the waters be gathered together, and the dry land appear, close quote, means that corporeal matter was impressed with the substantial form of water, so as to have such movement, and with the substantial form of earth, so as to have such an appearance. According, however, to other holy writers, see question 66, article 1, an order of duration in the works is to be understood by which is meant that the formlessness of matter precedes its formation, and one form another in order of time. Nevertheless, they do not hold that the formlessness of matter implies the total absence of form, since heaven, earth, and water already existed, since these three are named as already clearly perceptible to the senses. Rather, they understand by formlessness the want of due distinction of perfect beauty, and in respect of these three, Scripture mentions three kinds of formlessness, heaven, the highest of them, was without form so long as darkness filled it, because it was the source of light. The formlessness of water, which holds the middle place, is called the deep, because, as Augustine says, against Faustus a Manichae, chapter 22, 11, this word signifies the mass of waters without order. Thirdly, the formless state of the earth is touched upon when the earth is said to be void or invisible, because it was covered by the waters. Thus, then, the formation of the highest body took place on the first day, and since time results from the movement of the heaven, and is the numerical measure of the movement of the highest body, from this formation resulted the distinction of time, namely that of night and day.
On the second day the intermediate body water was formed, receiving from the firmament a sort of distinction and order, so that water be understood as including certain other things, as explained above, question 68, article 3. On the third day the earth, the lowest body, received its form by the withdrawal of the waters, and there resulted the distinction in the lowest body, namely of land and sea. Hence scripture, having clearly expressed the formless state of the earth, by saying that it was invisible or void, expresses the manner in which it received its form by the equally suitable words, quote, let the dry land appear, close quote. Reply to Objection 1. According to Augustine, the literal meaning of Genesis 2, 7, 8, 3, 20, Scripture does not say of the work of the third day that it was made, as it says of those that precede, in order to show that higher and spiritual forms, such as the angels and the heavenly bodies, are perfect and stable in being, whereas inferior forms are imperfect and mutable. Hence the impression of such forms is signified by the gathering of the waters and the appearing of the land. For water, to use Augustine's words, quote, glides and flows away, the earth abides, close quote. Genesis Adlet 2, 11. Others again hold that the work of the third day was perfected on that day only as regards movement from place to place, and that for this reason Scripture has no reason to speak of it as made. Reply to Objection 2. This argument is easily solved according to Augustine's opinion concerning Genesis against the Manichees. 1. Because we need not suppose that the earth was first covered by the waters, and that these were afterwards gathered together, but that they were produced in this very gathering together. But according to the other writers there are three solutions which Augustine gives. The literal meaning of Genesis 1.12. The first supposes that the waters are heaped up to a greater height at the place where they were gathered together, for it has been proved in regard to the Red Sea that the sea is higher than the land, as Basil remarks, fourth homily on the hexamoron. The second explains the water that covered the earth as being rarefied or nebulous, which was afterwards condensed when the waters were gathered together. The third suggests the existence of hollows in the earth to receive the confluence of waters. Of the above, the first seems the most probable. Reply to Objection 3. All the waters have the sea as their goal, into which they flow by channels hidden or apparent, and this may be the reason why they are said to be gathered together into one place, or, quote, one place, close quote, is to be understood not simply, but as contrasted with the place of the dry land, so that the sense would be, quote, let the waters be gathered together in one place, close quote, that is, apart from the dry land. That the waters occupied more places than one seems to be implied by the words that follow, quote, the gathering together of the waters he called seas, close quote. Reply to Objection 4. The divine command gives bodies their natural movement, and by these natural movements they are said to, quote, fulfill his word, close quote. Or we may say that it was according to the nature of water completely to cover the earth, just as the air completely surrounds both water and earth, but as a necessary means towards an end. 
namely that plants and animals might be on the earth, it was necessary for the waters to be withdrawn from a portion of the earth. Some philosophers attribute this uncovering of the earth's surface to the action of the sun, lifting up the vapors and thus drying the land. Scripture, however, attributes it to the divine power, not only in the book of Genesis, but also the book of Job, chapter 38, verse 10, where in the person of the Lord it is said, quote, I set my bounds around the sea, close quote. And Jeremiah, chapter 5, verse 22, where it is written, quote, Will you not then fear me, saith the Lord, who have set the sand abound for the sea? Close quote. Reply to Objection 5. According to Augustine, Concerning Genesis against the Manichees, 1. Primary matter is meant by the word earth, where first mentioned, but in the present passage it is to be taken for the element itself. Again it may be said with Basil, fourth homily on the Exameron, that the earth is mentioned in the first passage in respect of its nature, but here in respect of its principal property, namely dryness. Wherefore it is written, quote, He called the dry land earth, close quote. It may also be said with Rabbi Moses that the expression, quote, he called, close quote, denotes throughout an equivocal use of the name imposed. Thus we find it said at first that, quote, he called the light day, close quote, for the reason that later on a period of twenty-four hours is also called day, where it is said that, quote, there was evening and morning, one day, close quote. In like manner, it is said that, Quote, the firmament, close quote, that is, the air, quote, he called heaven, close quote. For that which was first created was also called, quote, heaven, close quote. And here again it is said that, quote, the dry land, close quote, that is, the part from which the waters had withdrawn, quote, he called earth, close quote, as distinct from the sea, although the name earth is equally applied to that which is covered with waters or not. So by the expression, quote, he called, close quote, we are to understand throughout that the nature or property he bestowed corresponded to the name he gave. Second article, whether it was fitting that the production of plants should take place on the third day. Objection 1. It would seem that it was not fitting that the production of plants should take place on the third day. For plants have life as animals have, but the production of animals belongs to the work not of distinction but of adornment. Therefore the production of plants, as also belonging to the work of adornment, ought not to be recorded as taking place on the third day, which is devoted to the work of distinction. Objection to Further, a work by which the earth is accursed should have been recorded apart from the work on which it receives its form. But the words of Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, quote, Cursed is the earth in thy work, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, close quote, show that by the production of certain plants the earth was accursed. Therefore the production of plants in general should not have been recorded on the third day, which is concerned with the work of formation. Objection 3. Further, as plants are firmly fixed to the earth, so are stones and metals, which are nevertheless not mentioned in the work of formation. Plants, therefore, ought not to have been made on the third day. 
On the contrary, it is said, Genesis chapter 1, verse 12, quote, The earth brought forth the green herb, close quote, after which there follows, quote, The evening and the morning were the third day, close quote. I answer that, on the third day, as said in Article 1, the formless state of the earth comes to an end, but this state is described as twofold. On the one hand, the earth was, quote, invisible, close quote, or, quote, void, close quote, being covered by the waters. On the other hand, it was, quote, shapeless, close quote, or, quote, empty, close quote, that is, without that comeliness which it owes to the plants that clothe it as it were with a garment. Thus, therefore, in either respect, this formless state ends on the third day. First, when, quote, the waters were gathered together into one place, and the dry land appeared, close quote. Secondly, when, quote, the earth brought forth the green herb, close quote. But concerning the production of plants, Augustine's opinion differs from that of others. For other commentators, in accordance with the surface meaning of the text, consider that the plants were produced in act in their various species on this third day, whereas Augustine, the literal meaning of Genesis 5, 5, and 8, 3, says that the earth is said to have then produced plants and trees in their causes, that is, it received then the power to produce them. He supports this view by the authority of Scripture, for it is said, Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, quote, These are the generations of the heaven and the earth, when they were created in the day that God made the heaven and the earth and every plant of the field before it sprung up in the earth, and every herb of the ground before it grew. Therefore, the production of plants in their causes within the earth took place before they sprang up from the earth's surface. And this is confirmed by reason as follows. In these first days, God created all things in their origin or causes, and from this work he subsequently rested. Yet afterwards, by governing his creatures in the work of propagation, quote, he worketh until now, close quote, now the production of plants from the earth is a work of propagation, and therefore they were not produced in act on the third day, but in their causes only. However, in accordance with other writers, it may be said that the first constitution of species belongs to the work of the six days, but the reproduction among them, of like from like, to the government of the universe. And Scripture indicates that in the words, quote, before it sprung up in the earth, close quote, and, quote, before it grew, close quote, that is, before like was produced from like, just as now happens in the natural course by the production of seed. Wherefore, Scripture says pointedly, Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, quote, Let the earth bring forth the green herb, and such as may seed, close quote, as indicating the production of perfect species from which the seed of others should arise. Nor does the question where the seminal power may reside, whether in root, stem, or fruit, affect the argument. Reply to Objection 1. Life in plants is hidden, since they lack the sense and local movement by which the animate and the inanimate are chiefly discernible, and therefore, since they are firmly fixed in the earth, their production is treated as a part of the earth's formation. Reply to Objection 2. Even before the earth was accursed, 
thorns and thistles had been produced either virtually or actually but they were not produced in punishment of man as though the earth which he tilled to gain his food produced unfruitful or noxious plants hence it is said quote, shall it bring forth to thee close quote. reply to objection three moses put before the people such things only as were manifest to their senses as we have said in question sixty seven article four question sixty eight article three but minerals are generated in hidden ways within the bowels of the earth moreover they seem hardly specifically distinct from earth and would seem to be species thereof for this reason therefore he makes no mention of them end of question sixty nine question seventy of summa theologico pars prima on the angels and on the six days this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kelly Weiskel. Summa Theologica Pars Prima. On the Angels and on the Six Days. By St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 70. Of the work of adornment, as regards the fourth day, in three articles. We must next consider the work of adornment. First, as to each day by itself. Secondly, as to all seven days in general. In the first place, then, we consider the work of the fourth day. Secondly, that of the fifth day. Thirdly, that of the sixth day. And fourthly, such matters as belong to the seventh day. Under the first head, there are three points of inquiry. One, as to the production of the lights. Two, as to the end of their production. Three, whether they are living beings. First Article Whether the lights ought to have been produced on the fourth day. Objection 1. It would seem that the lights ought not to have been produced on the fourth day, for the heavenly luminaries are by nature incorruptible bodies, wherefore their matter cannot exist without their form. But as their matter was produced in the work of creation, before there was any day. So therefore were their forms. It follows, then, that the lights were not produced on the fourth day. Objection 2. Further, the luminaries are, as it were, vessels of light. But light was made on the first day. The luminaries, therefore, should have been made on the first day, not the fourth. Objection 3. Further, the lights are fixed in the firmament, as plants are fixed in the earth. For, the scripture says, He set them in the firmament. But plants are described as produced when the earth, to which they are attached, received its form. The lights, therefore, should have been produced at the same time as the firmament, that is to say, on the second day. Objection 4. Further, Plants are an effect of the sun, moon, and other heavenly bodies. Now, cause precedes effect in the order of nature. The lights, therefore, ought not to have been produced on the fourth day, but on the third day. Objection 5. Further, as astronomers say, there are many stars larger than the moon. Therefore, 
the sun and the moon alone are not correctly described as the two great lights. On the contrary, suffices the authority of Scripture. I answer that. In recapitulating the divine works, Scripture says, Genesis 2.1, So the heavens and the earth were finished in all the furniture of them, thereby indicating that the work was threefold. In the first work, that of creation, the heaven and the earth were produced, but as yet without form. In the second, or work of distinction, the heaven and the earth were perfected, either by adding substantial form to formless matter, as Augustine holds, or by giving them the order and the beauty due to them, as other holy writers suppose. To these two works is added the work of adornment, which is distinct from perfect. For the perfection of the heaven and the earth regards, seemingly, those things that belong to them intrinsically. But the adornment, those that are extrinsic, just as the perfection of a man lies in his proper parts and forms, and his adornment and clothing are such like. Now just as distinction of certain things is made most evident by their local movement, as separating one from another, so the work of adornment is set forth by the production of things having movement in the heavens and upon the earth. But it has been stated above in question 69 that three things are recorded as created, namely, the heaven, the water, and the earth. And these three receive their form from three days of work of distinction, so that heaven was formed on the first day. On the second day the waters were separated, and on the third day, the earth was divided into sea and dry land. So also is it in the work of adornment, on the first day of this work, which is the fourth of creation, are produced the lights, to adorn the heaven by their movements. On the second day, which is the fifth, birds and fishes are called into being, to make beautiful the intermediate element, for they move in air and water, which are here taken as one, while on the third day, which is the sixth, animals are brought forth to move upon the earth and adorn it. It must also here be noted that Augustine's opinion on the production of lights is not at variance with that of other holy writers, since he says that they were made actually and not merely virtually. For the firmament has not the power of producing lights, as the earth has of producing plants. Wherefore, Scripture does not say, Let the firmament produce lights, though it says, Let the earth bring forth the green herb. Reply, Objection 1. In Augustine's opinion, there is no difficulty here, for he does not hold a succession of time in these works, and so there was no need for the matter of the lights to exist under another form. Nor is there any difficulty in the opinions of those who hold the heavenly bodies to be of the nature of the four elements, for it may be said that they were formed out of matter already existing, as animals and plants were formed. For those, however, who hold the heavenly bodies to be of another nature from the elements, and naturally incorruptible, the answer must be that the lights were substantially created at the beginning, but that their substance, at first formless, is formed on this day, by receiving not its substantial form, but a determination of power, as to the fact that the lights are not mentioned as existing from the beginning, but only 
as made on the fourth day. Chrysostom explains this by the need of guarding the people from the danger of idolatry, since the lights are proved not to be gods by the fact that they were not from the beginning. Reply Objection 2 No difficulty exists if we follow Augustine in holding the lights made on the first day to be spiritual, and that made on this day to be corporeal. If, however, the lights made on the first day is understood to be itself corporeal, then it must be held to have been produced on that day merely as light in general, and that on the fourth day the lights received a definite power to produce determinate effects. Thus we observe that the rays of the sun have one effect, those of the moon another, and so forth. Hence speaking of such a determination of power, Dionysius says that the sun's light, which previously was without form, was formed on the fourth day. Reply Objection 3 According to Ptolemy, the heavenly luminaries are not fixed in the spheres, but have their own movement distinct from the movement of the spheres. Wherefore, Chrysostom says that he is said to have set them in the firmament, not because he fixed them there immovably, but because he bade them to be there, even as he placed man in paradise to be there, in the opinion of Aristotle, however, the stars are fixed in their orbits, and in reality have no other movements but that of the spheres. And yet our senses perceive the movement of the luminaries and not that of the spheres. But Moses describes what is obvious to sense out of condescension to popular ignorance, as we have already said. Question 67, answer 4. Question 68, answer 3. The objection, however, falls to the ground if we regard the firmament made on the second day as having a natural distinction from that in which the stars are placed. Even though the distinction is not apparent to the senses, the testimony of which Moses follows as stated above, for although to the senses there appears to be one firmament, if we admit a higher and lower firmament, the lower will be that which was made on the second day, and on the fourth the stars were fixed in the higher firmament. Reply Objection 4 In the words of Basil, plants were recorded as produced before the sun and moon to prevent idolatry, since those who believe the heavenly bodies to be gods hold that plants originate primarily from these bodies. Although, as Chrysostom remarks, the sun, moon, and stars cooperate in the work of production by their movements, as the husbandman cooperates by his labor. Reply Objection 5 as Chrysostom says, the two lights are called great, not so much with regard to their dimensions as to their influence and power. For though the stars be of greater bulk than the moon, yet the influence of the moon is more perceptible to the senses in this lower world. Moreover, as far as the senses are concerned, its apparent size is greater. Second Article Question 70, Article 2 whether the cause assigned for the production of lights is reasonable. Objection 1. It would seem that the cause assigned for the production of lights is not reasonable, for it is said, Jeremiah 10.2, Be not afraid of the signs of heaven, which the heathens fear. Therefore, the heavenly lights were not made to be signs. Objection 2. Further, sign is contradistinguished from cause. But the lights are the cause of what takes place upon the earth. Therefore, they are not signs. Objection 3. Further, 
the distinction of seasons and days began from the first day. Therefore the lights were not made for seasons, days, and years, that is, in order to distinguish them. Objection 4. Further, nothing is made for the sake of that which is inferior to itself, since the end is better than the means. But the lights are nobler than the earth, therefore they were not made to enlighten it. Objection 5. Further, the new moon cannot be said to rule the night, but such it probably did when first made, for men begin to count from the new moon. The moon, therefore, was not made to rule the night. On the contrary, suffices the authority of Scripture. I answer that. As we have said above, question 65, answer 2, a corporeal creature can be considered as made either for the sake of its proper act, or for other creatures, or for the whole universe, or for the glory of God. Of these reasons only that which points out the usefulness of these things to man is touched upon by Moses, in order to withdraw his people from idolatry. Hence it is written, Deuteronomy 4.19, Lest perhaps lifting up thy eyes to heaven thou see the sun and the moon and all the stars of heaven, and being deceived by error thou adore and serve them, which the Lord thy God created for the service of all nations. Now, he explains this service at the beginning of Genesis as threefold. First, the lights are of service to man, in regard to sight, which directs him in his works, and is most useful for perceiving objects. In reference to this, he says, Let them shine in the firmament and give life to the earth. Secondly, as regards to the changes of the seasons, which prevent weariness, preserve health, and provide for the necessities of food all of which things could not be secured if it were always summer or winter. In reference to this, he says, Let them be for seasons and for days and years. Thirdly, as regards the convenience of business and work, in so far as the lights are set in the heavens to indicate fair or foul weather as favorable to various occupations, and in this respect, he says, Let them be for signs. Reply Objection 1. The lights in the heaven are set for signs of changes affected in corporeal creatures, but not of those changes which depend upon the free will. Reply Objection 2. We are sometimes brought to the knowledge of hidden effects through their sensible causes, and conversely, hence nothing prevents a sensible cause from being a sign. But he says signs, rather than causes, to guard against idolatry. Reply Objection 3. The general division of time into day and night took place on the first day, as regards the diurnal movement, which is common to the whole heaven, and may be understood to have begun on that first day. But the particular distinctions of days and seasons and years, according as one day is hotter than another, one season than another, and one year than another, are due to certain particular movements of the stars, which movements may have had their beginnings on the fourth day. Reply Objection 4. Light was given to the earth for the service of man, who, by reason of his soul, is nobler than the heavenly bodies. Nor is it untrue to say that a higher creature may be made for the sake of a lower, considered not in itself, but as ordained to the good of the universe. Reply Objection 5. 
when the moon is at its perfection, it rises in the evening and sets in the morning, and thus it rules the night. And it was probably made in its full perfection as were plants yielding seed, as also were animals and man himself. For although the perfect is developed from the imperfect by natural process, yet the perfect must exist simply before the imperfect. Augustine, however, does not say this, for he says that it is not unfitting that God made things imperfect, which he afterwards perfected. Third Article Question 70, Article 3 Whether the lights of heaven are living beings Objection 1 It would seem that the lights of heaven are living beings, for the nobler a body is, the more nobly it should be adorned. But a body less noble than the heavens is adorned with living beings, with fish, birds, and the beast of the field. Therefore, the lights of heaven as pertaining to its adornment should be living beings also. Objection 2. Further, the nobler a body is, the nobler must be its form. But the sun, moon, and stars are nobler bodies than plants or animals, and must therefore have nobler forms. Now the noblest of all forms is the soul, as being the first principle of life. Hence, Augustine says, Every living substance stands higher in the order of nature than one that has not life. The lights of heaven, therefore, are living beings. Objection 3. Further, a cause is nobler than its effect, but the sun, moon, and stars are a cause of life, as is especially evidenced in the case of animals generated from putrefaction, which receive life from the power of the sun and the stars. Much more, therefore, have the heavenly bodies a living soul. Objection 4. Further, the movement of the heavens and the heavenly bodies are natural, and natural movement is from an intrinsic principle. Now the principle of movement in the heavenly bodies is a substance capable of apprehension, and is moved as the desire is moved by the object desired. Therefore, seemingly, the apprehending principle is intrinsic to the heavenly bodies, and consequently, they are living beings. Objection 5. Further, the first of movables is the heaven. Now, of all things that are endowed with movement, the first moves itself, as is proved in Physics 8, text 34, because what is such of itself precedes that which is by another. But only beings that are living move themselves, as is shown in the same book, text 27. Therefore, the heavenly bodies are living beings. On the contrary, Damothene says, Let no one esteem the heavens or the heavenly bodies to be living things, for they have neither life nor sense. I answer that. Philosophers have differed on this question. Anaxagoras, for instance, as Augustine mentions, was condemned by the Athenians for teaching that the sun was a fiery mass of stone, and neither a god nor even a living being. On the other hand, the Platonist held that the heavenly bodies have life, nor was there less diversity of opinion among the doctors of the church. It was the belief of Origen and Jerome that these bodies were alive, and the latter seems to explain that the sense of the words, Ecclesiastics one six, the spirit goeth forward, surveying all places round about. But Basil and Damascene maintain that the heavenly bodies are inanimate. Augustine leaves the matter in doubt, 
without committing himself to either theory, though he goes so far as to say that if the heavenly bodies are really living beings, their souls must be akin to the angelic nature. In examining the truth of this question where such diversity of opinion exists, we shall do well to bear in mind that the union of soul and body exists for the sake of the soul, and not of the body. For the form does not exist for the matter, but the matter for the form. Now the nature and power of the soul are apprehended through its operation, which is to a certain extent its end. Yet for some of these operations, as sensation and nutrition, our body is a necessary instrument. Hence it is clear that the sensitive and nutritive souls must be united to a body in order to exercise their functions. There are, however, operations of the soul which are not exercised through the medium of the body, though the body ministers, as it were, to their production. The intellect, for example, makes use of the phantasms derived from bodily senses, and thus far is dependent on the body, although capable of existing apart from it. It is not, however, possible that the functions of nutrition, growth, and generation, through which the nutritive soul operates, can be exercised by the heavenly bodies, for such operations are incompatible with the body naturally incorruptible. Equally impossible is it that the functions of the sensitive soul can appertain to the heavenly body, since all the senses depend on the sense of touch, which perceives elemental qualities, and all the organs of the senses require a certain proportion in the admixture of elements, whereas the nature of heavenly bodies is not elemental. It follows, then, that of the operations of the soul, the only ones left to be attributed to the heavenly bodies are those of understanding and moving. For appetite follows both sensitive and intellectual perception, and is in proportion thereto. But the operations of the intellect, which does not act through the body, do not need a body as their instrument, except to supply phantasms through the senses. Moreover, the operations of the sensitive soul, as we have seen, cannot be attributed to the heavenly bodies. Accordingly, the union of a soul to a heavenly body cannot be for the purpose of the operations of the intellect. It remains, then, only to consider whether the movement of the heavenly bodies demands a soul as a motive power, not that the soul, in order to move the heavenly body, need be united to the latter as its form, but by contact of power, as a mover is united to that which he moves. Therefore, Aristotle, after showing that the first mover is made up of two parts, the moving and the moved, goes on to show the nature of the union between these two parts. This, he says, is affected by contact which is mutual. If both are bodies, on the part of one only, if one is a body and the other not, the Platonists explain the union of soul and body in the same way, as a contact of a moving power with the object moved. And since Plato holds the heavenly bodies to be living beings, this means nothing else but that substances of spiritual nature are united to them and act as their moving power, a proof that the heavenly bodies are moved by the direct influence and contact of some spiritual substance, and not, like bodies of specific gravity, by nature, lies in the fact that whereas nature moves to one fixed end which having attained at rest, this does not appear in the movement of heavenly bodies. Hence it follows that they are moved by some intellectual substances. Augustine appears to be of the same opinion, 
when he expresses his belief that all corporeal things are ruled by God through the Spirit of life. From what has been said then, it is clear that the heavenly bodies are not living beings in the same sense as plants and animals, and that if they are called so it can only be equivocally, it will also be seen that the difference of opinion between those who affirm and those who deny that these bodies have life is not a difference of things, but of words. Reply, Objection 1. Certain things belong to the adornment of the universe by reason of their proper movement, and in this way the heavenly luminaries agree with others that conduce to that adornment, for they are moved by a living substance. Reply, Objection 2. One being may be nobler than another absolutely, but not in a particular respect. Well, then, it is not conceded that the souls of heavenly bodies are nobler than the souls of animals absolutely. It must be conceded that they are superior to them with regard to their respective forms, since their form perfects their matter entirely, which is not in potentiality to other forms, whereas a soul does not do this. Also, as regards movement, the power that moves the heavenly bodies is of a nobler kind. Reply Objection 3 since the heavenly body is a mover moved, it is of the nature of an instrument, which acts in virtue of the agent, and therefore, since this agent is a living substance, the heavenly body can impart life in virtue of that agent. Reply Objection 4. The movements of the heavenly bodies are natural, not on account of their active principle, but on account of their passive principle, that is to say, from a certain natural aptitude for being moved by an intelligent power. Reply Objection 5. The heaven is said to move itself in as far as it is compounded, a mover and moved, not by the union of the mover, as the form, with the moved, as the matter, but by contact with the motive power. As we have said, so far then, the principle that moves it may be called intrinsic, and consequently, its movement natural with respect to that active principle, just as we say that voluntary movement is natural to the animal as animal. End of question 70. Recording by Kelly Weiskel. Question 71 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the angels and on the six days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On the Angels and on the Six Days, by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 71, on the work of the fifth day, in one article. We must next consider the work of the fifth day. Objection 1. It would seem that this work is not fittingly described, for the waters produce that which the power of water suffices to produce. But the power of water does not suffice for the production of every kind of fishes and birds, since we find that many of them are generated from seed. Therefore the words, that the waters bring forth the creeping creature having life, and the fowl that may fly over the earth, do not fittingly describe this work. Objection 2. Further, fishes and birds are not produced from water only, 
but earth seems to predominate over water in their composition, as is shown by the fact that their bodies tend naturally to the earth and rest upon it. It is not then fittingly said that fishes and birds are produced from water. Objection 3. Further, fishes move in the waters and birds in the air. If then fishes are produced from the waters, birds ought to be produced from the air and not from the waters. Objection 4. Further, not all fishes creep through the waters, for some, as seals, have feet and walk on land. Therefore, the production of fishes is not sufficiently described by the words, let the waters bring forth the creeping creature having life. Objection 5. Further, land animals are more perfect than birds and fishes, which appear from the fact that they have more distinct limbs and generation of a higher order. For they bring forth living beings, whereas birds and fishes bring forth eggs. But the more perfect has precedence in the order of nature. Therefore, fishes and birds ought not to have been produced on the fifth day before land animals. On the contrary, suffices the authority of Scripture. I answer that, as said above, in question 70, article 1, the order of the work of adornment corresponds to the order of the work of distinction. Hence, as among the three days assigned to the work of distinction, the middle or second day is devoted to the work of distinction of water, which is the intermediate body. So, in the three days of the work of adornment, the middle day, which is the fifth, is assigned to the adornment of the intermediate body by the production of birds and fishes. As then, Moses makes mention of the lights and the light on the fourth day, to show that the fourth day corresponds to the first day on which he had said that the light was made. So, on this fifth day, he mentions the waters and the firmament of heaven, to show that the fifth day corresponds to the second. It must, however, be observed that Augustine differs from other writers in his opinion about the production of fishes and birds, as he differs about the production of plants. For while others say that fishes and birds were produced on the fifth day, actually he holds that the nature of the waters produced them on that day potentially. Reply to Objection 1 It was laid down by Avicenna that animals of all kinds can be generated by various mingling of the elements, and naturally without any kind of seed. This, however, seems repugnant to the fact that nature produces its effects by determinate means, and consequently those things that are naturally generated from seed cannot be generated naturally in any other way. It ought then rather to be said that in the natural generation of all animals that are generated from seed, the active principle lies in the formative power of the seed, but that in the case of animals generated from putrefaction, the formative power of is the influence of the heavenly bodies. The material principle, however, in the generation of either kind of animals, is either some element 
or something compounded of the elements. But at the first beginning of the world, the active principle was the word of God, which produced animals from material elements, either in act, as some holy writers say, or virtually, as Augustine teaches. Not as though the power possessed by water or earth of producing all animals resides in the earth and the water themselves, as Avicenna held, but in the power originally given to the elements of producing them from elemental matter by the power of seed or the influence of the stars. Reply to Objection 2. The bodies of birds and fishes may be considered from two points of view. If considered in themselves, it will be evident that the earthly element must predominate, since the element that is least active, namely the earth, must be the most abundant in quantity, in order that the mingling may be duly tempered in the body of the animal. But if considered as by nature constituted to move with certain specific motions, thus they have some special affinity with the bodies in which they move, and hence the words in which their generation is described. Reply to Objection 3. The air, as not being so apparent to the senses, is not enumerated by itself, but with other things, partly with the water, because the lower region of the air is thickened by watery exhalations, partly with the heaven, as to the higher region. But birds move in the lower part of the air, and so are said to fly beneath the firmament, even if the firmament be taken to mean the region of clouds. Hence, the production of birds is ascribed to the water. Reply to Objection 4. Nature passes from one extreme to another through the medium, and therefore there are creatures of intermediate type between the animals of the air and those of the water, having something in common with both, and they are reckoned as belonging to that class to which they are most allied, through the characters possessed in common with that class, rather than with the other. But in order to include among fishes all such intermediate forms as have special characters like to theirs, the words, let the waters bring forth the creeping creature having life, are followed by these, God created great whales, etc. Reply to Objection 5. The order in which the production of these animals is given has reference to the order of those bodies which they are set to adorn, rather than to the superiority of the animals themselves. Moreover, in generation also, the most perfect is reached through the less perfect. End of question 71. Question 72 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Angels and on the Six Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Angels and on the Six Days, by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 72 on the work of the sixth day in one article. 
we must now consider the work of the sixth day. Objection 1. It would seem that this work is not fittingly described. For as birds and fishes have a living soul, so also have land animals. But these animals are not themselves living souls. Therefore the words, Let the earth bring forth the living creature, should rather have been, Let the earth bring forth the living four-footed creatures. Objection 2. Further, a genus ought not to be opposed to its species. But beasts and cattle are quadrupeds. Therefore, quadrupeds ought not to be enumerated as a class with beasts and cattle. Objection 3. Further, as animals belong to a determinate genus and species, so also does man. But in the making of man, nothing is said of his genus and species, and therefore nothing ought to have been said about them in the production of other animals, whereas it is said according to its genus and in its species. Objection 4. Further, land animals are more like men, whom God is recorded to have blessed, than are birds and fishes. But as birds and fishes are said to be blessed, this should have been said, with much more reason, of the other animals as well. Objection 5. Further, certain animals are generated from putrefaction, which is a kind of corruption. But corruption is repugnant to the first founding of the world. Therefore, such animals should not have been produced at that time. Objection 6. Further, certain animals are poisonous and injurious to man. But there ought to have been nothing injurious to man before man sinned. Therefore, such animals ought not to have been made by God at all, since he is the author of good, or at least not until man had sinned. On the contrary, suffices the authority of Scripture. I answer that, as on the fifth day, the intermediate body, namely the water, is adorned, and thus that day corresponds to the second day. So the sixth day, on which the lowest body, or the earth, is adorned by the production of land animals, corresponds to the third day. Hence the earth is mentioned in both places. And here again Augustine says, in the little meaning of Genesis 5, that the production was potential, and other holy writers, that it was actual. Reply to Objection 1. The different grades of life, which are found in different living creatures, can be discovered from the various ways in which Scripture speaks of them, as Basil says in the Eighth Homily on the Exameron. The life of plants, for instance, is very imperfect and difficult to discern, and hence, in speaking of their production, nothing is said of their life, but only their generation is mentioned, since only in generation is a vital act observed in them. For the powers of nutrition and growth are subordinate to the generative life, as will be shown later on question 78, article 2. But amongst animals, those that live on land are generally speaking more perfect than birds and fishes, not because the fish is devoid of memory, as Basil upholds in the Eighth Homily on the Exameron, and Augustine rejects in the literal meaning of Genesis 3, 
but because their limbs are more distinct and their generation of a higher order. Yet some imperfect animals, such as bees and ants, are more intelligent in certain ways. Scripture, therefore, does not call fishes living creatures, but creeping creatures having life, whereas it does call land animals living creatures, on account of their more perfect life, and seems to imply that fishes are merely bodies having in them something of a soul, whilst land animals, from the higher perfection of their life, are, as it were, living souls with bodies subject to them. But the life of man, as being the most perfect grade, is not said to be produced, like the life of other animals, by earth or water, but immediately by God. Reply to Objection 2. By cattle, domestic animals are signified, which in any way are of service to man. But by beasts, wild animals, such as bears and lions, are designated. By creeping things, those animals are meant which either have no feet and cannot rise from the earth, as serpents, or those whose feet are too short to lift them far from the ground, as the lizard and tortoise. But since certain animals, as deer and goats, seem to fall under none of these classes, the word quadrupeds is added. Or perhaps the word quadruped is used first as being the genus to which the others are added as species, for even some reptiles, such as lizards and tortoises, are four-footed. Reply to Objection 3. In other animals and in plants, mention is made of genus and species to denote the generation of like from like. But it was unnecessary to do so in the case of man, as what had already been said of other creatures might be understood of him. Again, animals and plants may be said to be produced according to their kinds, to signify their remoteness from the divine image and likeness, whereas man is said to be made to the image and likeness of God. Reply to Objection 4. The blessing of God gives power to multiply by generation, and having been mentioned in the preceding account of the making of birds and fishes, could be understood of the beasts of the earth without requiring to be repeated. The blessing, however, is repeated in the case of men, since in him generation of children has a special relation to the number of the elect. Confront Augustine on the literal meaning of Genesis 3.12 and to prevent any one from saying that there was any sin whatever in the act of begetting children. As to plants, since they experience neither desire of propagation nor sensation in generating, they are deemed unworthy of a formal blessing. Reply to Objection 5. Since the generation of one thing is the corruption of another, it was not incompatible with the first formation of things that from the corruption of the less perfect, the more perfect should be generated. Hence, animals generated from the corruption of inanimate things, or of plants, may have been generated then. But those generated from corruption of animals could not have been produced then otherwise than potentially. 
Reply to Objection 6. In the words of Augustine, about on Genesis against the many keys, 1. If an unskilled person enters the workshop of an artificer, he sees in it many appliances of which he does not understand the use, and which, if he is a foolish fellow, he considers unnecessary. Moreover, should he carelessly fall into the fire, or wound himself with a sharp-edged tool, he is under the impression that many of the things there are hurtful, whereas the craftsman, knowing their use, laughs at his folly. And thus some people presume to find fault with many things in this world through not seeing the reasons for their existence. For though not required for the furnishing of our house, these things are necessary for the perfection of the universe. And, since man before he sinned would have used the things of this world conformably to the order designed, poisonous animals would not have injured him. End of question 72 Question 73 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Angels and on the Six Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Angels and on the Six Days, by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 73 on the things that belong to the seventh day in three articles we must next consider the things that belong to the seventh day under this head there are three points of inquiry one about the completion of the works two about the resting of god three about the blessing and sanctifying of this day first article whether the completion of the divine works ought to be ascribed to the seventh day. Objection 1. It would seem that the completion of the divine works ought not to be ascribed to the seventh day. For all things that are done in this world belong to the divine works. But the consummation of the world will be at the end of the world. In Matthew chapter 13 verses 39 and 40. Moreover, the time of Christ's incarnation is a time of completion, wherefore it is called the time of fullness, in the Vulgate, the fullness of time, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. And Christ himself, at the moment of his death, cried out, It is consummated, in John chapter 19, verse 30. Hence, the completion of the divine works do not belong to the seventh day. Objection 2. Further, the completion of a work is an act in itself. But we do not read that God acted at all on the seventh day, but rather that he rested from all his work. Therefore, the completion of the works does not belong to the seventh day. Objection 3. Further, nothing is said to be complete to which many things are added, unless they are merely superfluous, for a thing is called perfect to which nothing is wanting that it ought to possess. But many things were made after the seventh day, as the production of many individual beings, and even of certain new species that are frequently appearing, 
especially in the case of animals generated from putrefaction. Also, God creates daily new souls. Again, the work of the Incarnation was a new work, of which it is said, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 22, The Lord hath created a new thing upon the earth. Miracles also are new works, of which it is said, in Ecclesiastes chapter 36, verse 6, Renew thy signs, and work new miracles. Moreover, all things will be made new when the saints are glorified, according to Apocalypse chapter 21, verse 5. And he that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Therefore, the completion of the divine works ought not to be attributed to the seventh day. On the contrary, it is said, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, On the seventh day God ended his work which he had made. I answer that the perfection of a thing is twofold, the first perfection and the second perfection. The first perfection is that according to which a thing is substantially perfect, and this perfection is the form of the whole, which form results from the whole having its parts complete. But the second perfection is the end, which is either an operation, as the end of the harpist is to play the harp, or something that is attained by an operation, as the end of the builder is the house that he makes by building. But the first perfection is the cause of the second, because the form is the principle of operation. Now the final perfection, which is the end of the whole universe, is the perfect beatitude of the saints at the consummation of the world, and the first perfection is the completeness of the universe at its first founding, and that is what is ascribed to the seventh day. Reply to Objection 1 The first perfection is the cause of the second, as above said. Now, for the attaining of beatitude, two things are required, nature and grace. Therefore, as said above, the perfection of beatitude will be at the end of the world. But this consummation existed previously in its causes, as to nature, at the first founding of the world, as to grace in the incarnation of Christ. For grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, in John chapter 1, verse 17. So, then, on the seventh day was the consummation of nature, in Christ's incarnation, the consummation of grace, and at the end of the world will be the consummation of glory. Reply to Objection 2. God did act on the seventh day, not by creating new creatures, but by directing and moving his creatures to the work proper to them, and thus he made some beginning of the second perfection. So that, according to our version of the scripture, the completion of the works is attributed to the seventh day, though, according to another, it is assigned to the sixth. Either version, however, may stand, since the completion of the universe as to the completeness of its parts belongs to the sixth day, but its completion as regards their operation to the seventh. It may also be added that in continuous movement, so long as any movement further is possible, Movement cannot be called completed till it comes to rest, for rest denotes consummation of movement. Now, 
God might have made many other creatures besides those which he made in the six days, and hence, by the fact that he ceased making them on the seventh day, he is said on that day to have consummated his work. Reply to Objection 3. Nothing entirely new was afterwards made by God, but all things subsequently made had, in a sense, been made before in the work of the six days. Some things, indeed, had a previous experience materially, as the rib from the side of Adam, out of which God formed Eve, whilst others existed not only in matter, but also in their causes, as those individual creatures that are now generated existed in the first of their kind. Species also that are new, if any such appear, existed beforehand in various active powers, so that animals, and perhaps even new species of animals, are produced by putrefaction by the power which the stars and elements received at the beginning. Again, animals of new kinds arise occasionally from the connection of individuals belonging to different species, as the mule is the offspring of an ass and a mare. But even these existed previously in their causes, in the works of the six days. Some also existed beforehand, by way of similitude, as the souls now created. And the work of the incarnation itself was thus foreshadowed, for as we read in the Philippians chapter 2 verse 7, the Son of God was made in the likeness of men, and again the glory that is spiritual was anticipated in the angels by way of similitude, and that of the body in the heaven, especially the Empyrean. Hence it is written in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 10, Nothing under the sun is new, for it hath already gone before, in the ages that were before us. Second article, whether God rested on the seventh day from all his work. Objection 1. It would seem that God did not rest on the seventh day from all his work, for it is said in John chapter 5 verse 17, My father worketh until now, and I work. God then did not rest on the seventh day from all his work. Objection 2. Further, rest is opposed to movement, or to labor which movement causes. But, as God produced his work without movement and without labor, he cannot be said to have rested on the seventh day from his work. Objection 3. Further, should it be said that God rested on the seventh day by causing men to rest, against this it may be argued that rest is set down in contradistinction to his work. Now, the words God created or made this thing or the other cannot be explained to mean that he made men create or make these things. Therefore, the resting of God cannot be explained as his making men to rest. On the contrary, it is said in Genesis chapter 2 verse 2, God rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. I answer that rest is, properly speaking, opposed to movement, and consequently to the labor that arises from movement. But although movement, strictly speaking, is a quality of bodies, yet the word is applied also to spiritual things, and in a twofold sense. On the one hand, every operation may be called a movement, and thus the divine goodness is said to move and go forth to its object, 
in communicating itself to that object, as Dionysus says in the Divine Names too. On the other hand, the desire that tends to an object outside itself is said to move towards it. Hence rest is taken in two senses, in one sense meaning a cessation from work, in the other the satisfying of desire. Now in either sense God is said to have rested on the seventh day. First, because he ceased from creating new creatures on that day, for, as said above, in the article 1.3, he made nothing afterwards that had not existed previously in some degree in the first works. Secondly, because he himself had no need of the things that he had made, but was happy in the fruition of himself. Hence, when all things were made, he is not said to have rested in his works, as though needing them for his own happiness, but to have rested from them, as in fact resting in himself, as he suffices for himself and fulfills his own desire. And even though from all eternity he rested in himself, yet the rest in himself, which he took after he had finished his works, is that rest which belongs to the seventh day. And this, says Augustine, is the meaning of God's resting from his works on that day, in the literal meaning of Genesis 4. Reply to Objection 1. God indeed worketh until now by preserving and providing for the creatures he has made, but not by the making of new ones. Reply to Objection 2. Rest is here not opposed to labor or to movement, but to the production of new creatures and the desire tending to an external object. Reply to Objection 3. Even as God rests in himself alone and is happy in the enjoyment of himself, so our own soul happiness lies in the enjoyment of God. Thus, also, he makes us find rest in himself, both from his works and our own. It is not, then, unreasonable to say that God rested in giving rest to us. Still, this explanation must not be set down as the only one and the other is the first and principal explanation. Third article, whether blessing and sanctifying are due to the seventh day. Objection 1. It would seem that blessing and sanctifying are not due to the seventh day, for it is usual to call a time blessed or holy, for that some good thing has happened in it, or some evil being avoided. But whether God works or ceases from work, nothing accrues to him or is lost to him. Therefore, no special blessing or sanctifying are due to the seventh day. Objection 2. Further, the Latin benedictio, blessing, is derived from bonitas, goodness. But it is the nature of good to spread and communicate itself, as Dionysus says in Divine Names 4. The days, therefore, in which God produced creatures deserved a blessing, rather than the day on which he sees producing them. Objection 3. Further, over each creature a blessing was pronounced, as upon each work it was said, God saw that it was good. Therefore, it was not necessary that after all had been produced, the seventh day should be blessed. On the contrary, it is written in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he had rested from all his work. I answer that, as said above, in Article 2, 
God's rest on the seventh day is understood in two ways. First, in that he ceased from producing new works, though he still preserves and provides for the creatures he has made. Secondly, in that after all his works he rested in himself. According to the first meaning, then, a blessing befits the seventh day, since, as we explain in question 72, the blessing referred to the increase by multiplication, for which reason God said to the creatures which he blessed, increase and multiply. Now, this increase is effected through God's providence over his creatures, securing the generation of like from like. And according to the second meaning, it is right that the seventh day should have been sanctified, since the special sanctification of every creature consists in resting in God. For this reason, things dedicated to God are said to be sanctified. Reply to Objection 1. The seventh day is said to be sanctified, not because anything can accrue to God or be taken from Him, but because something is added to creatures by their multiplying and by their resting in God. Reply to Objection 2. In the first six days, creatures were produced in their first causes, but after being thus produced, they are multiplied and preserved, and this work also belongs to the divine goodness. And the perfection of this goodness is made most clear by the knowledge that in it alone God finds his own rest, and we may find ours in its fruition. Reply to Objection 3. The good mentioned in the works of each day belongs to the first institution of nature, but the blessing attached to the seventh day to its propagation. End of Question 73